Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Interestingly enough, I just finished a, a long Zoom call uh, with, uh, with 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 Sarah Longwell uh, with, with a group up in Minnesota discussing the future of the Republican Party. And one of the questions was, you know, do we continue to call ourselves conservatives? What 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 do we do with this word conservative? Which brings me to this piece that we had in the Bulwark last week. And I will say that of the pieces that we were on, I, I have thought about this one, I think, more than more than pretty much any other. And uh, if, if you have not read it, I would strongly recommend it. it. It's by it's by Joshua Tate, who is a historian of conservatism. He's written his dissertation on this. And, and the headline was The Long History of Fighting Over the Term Conservative. And he writes about the post-war circle of Something called the new conservatives who tried to claim the world, that tried to claim the word conservative, but they lost and were largely forgotten. And we are lucky enough to have Joshua Tate with us on the podcast today. Um, so thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much, Joshua. Oh, thank you for having me. I ought to note that this is rather extraordinary. I think we've set a new uh, record. I'm speaking to you, for, you. I'm in Wisconsin. You are in New Zealand. I, I, when we yeah. started this, I, I said, you're actually in New Zealand right now. Yeah, I am. Uh, I moved here for family reasons um, a little bit before COVID and then uh, COVID struck. And it turns out to be a, a pretty good place to, to ride it out. And it's the miracle of modern technology that we're having this conversation. I just have to admit that I, I'm still geeked out by that. That I, I figured that there'd be like a you know five second delay between everything that I would say in your response, but it, it really sounds good. So let's talk about this this new conservative. And I have to make a couple of confessions. I I mentioned this uh, to uh, to David from last week, and he, and he knew every one of the names that you mentioned in the the piece he could you know d knew about peter virick and he knew about peter virick's father and and the various issues that were involved there and i, I have to confess though that as i was reading your piece I, I was haunted by the the idea that here you had this very significant movement with some very formidable figures including clinton rossiter who was one of the leading political scientists of his time and yet it is almost completely forgotten. It was, in many ways, a failed attempt to reconceptualize conservatism. Um, is is that is that too harsh to say, though? That that they well, you know, that that they really their their project did not succeed, and they were they were overwhelmed by what we now think of as the conservative movement, and as a result, they're kind of a footnote. I think I think that's exactly right. I listened to the podcast with David Fromm, and uh, he is he is obviously a, a real student of conservatism. <laughs> I I remember citing him about a decade ago. He knows his stuff. I was very very impressed. Um, but yeah, I think you can find plenty of articles about Peter Verick in particular online on conservative websites like the Intercollegiate Studies mm -hmm. um, Institute. But it's very much. These were some people that were almost proto-conservative. They weren't true conservatives, which is how the Buckleyite right saw them at the time. And then, yeah, they were exactly as you described, overwhelmed. At one point, though, um, Partisan Review, the the prominent left-wing journal, described uh, 
conservatism or discussion about conservatism as reaching epidemic proportions in the in the early 1950s. So it was it was a moment, but then yeah, as you say, we've completely forgotten them. I don't know if you'll like this analogy, but I sometimes think of them almost like or they're they're almost treated like Neanderthals versus Homo sapiens. They were around with the with the Buckleyites, they were doing similar things, but they were, you know, outcompeted and are now completely forgotten. Well, and also the, the the spooky part. I after reading your piece, uh, I went online and I tried to uh, I tried to find Clinton Rossiter's book, which is, is still being delivered, but it it, it it's not easy to find anymore. Um, even though it was obviously a major piece, and I found uh, a public television show from 1956 put on by Syracuse University, where uh, folks are sitting around discussing Rossiter's book and they're talking about, you know, what he meant by conservatism and whether or not his definition of conservatism would take root and what its appeal was. Um, And I have to admit that what was actually haunting me even more than the Neanderthal Homo sapiens analogy was it really sounded exactly like the way people talk about the never Trumpers right now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, that there was, there was this, intellectual movement trying to find a centrist approach to conservatism that might appeal to liberals, but that was a rejection of the more extreme elements. I mean, as you say, they envisioned, um, you know, rather than just simply repudiating the New Deal, the new conservatives wanted to build on it while curbing its successes. They envisioned a conservatism as anti-fascist as it was anti-communist. So let's just talk about this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the histories of the conservative movement would begin with, and then um, William F. Buckley said, let there be light mm-hmm. and, found, and founded National Review. This is before this. This is early 1950s. The New Deal had been dominant in American politics. Um, there were conservative, there was a conservative opposition. So who were these these new conservatives and, and, and what were they pushing back against? I think it's worth setting the scene a little bit. Yeah, um, right. Because in the, the early or well, the late 1940s, early 1950s, you have a period where, you know, everyone's just come out of the depression, not only uh, the, the, the economic struggles of the depression, but the extreme politics of the depression. Then you've had, well, before that, you had the First World War, and then you have the Second World War, and the absolute human destruction, where you have, you know, Germany, the most modern nation in the world, you know, home of civilization for, in a lot of ways, um, descending into, you know, utter evil destruction. And after that, you have a period of kind of settling down and and a decision to or you know a, the public and and kind of even the high culture looking for something to kind of rest on and um find some stability or certainty in life you have uh, a massive resurgence in religion especially in the middle class and then even in the elite kind of intellectual circles you have a turn to theologians like Kierkegaard or neo-orthodox theology or in catholic circles a, a resurgence in nat- uh, natural law and so there's this culture-wide search for some sort of stability and the new conservatives i think are one of the political manifestations of that and they looked especially to europe and they also looked into the american past and they thought there are tools here for saying we have something good we have something that we don't want to throw away liberalism procedural liberalism alone is not sufficient to stand against the tyranny of uh, fascism or the tyranny of communism 
and maybe we need to start thinking of ourselves as conservatives, um, especially as we confront, you know, the beginning of the Cold War. And over uh, over all of this is the threat of atomic war and nuclear destruction, and the idea that if we get too caught up in extreme politics, well, maybe that's lights out for everyone. And so. You have a bunch of people like Peter Verick, like Clinton Rossiter, and a bunch of other names that I list in the piece, as well as kind of a broader circle of intellectuals that they draw on people like Reinhold Niebuhr, who weren't necessarily or, or certainly didn't think of themselves as conservative, but I guess contributed to this overall feeling in society. Now, did not, not to oversimplify it, but they they were thought of as kind of Eisenhower conservatives. If we're putting them on the on the political spectrum, they were, you describe Rossiter as painfully moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this would be, these would be people who politically would have been sort of pro Eisenhower, which again, again, was, re- was rejected by the Buckley conservatives. Is that, is that right? Roughly? Uh, roughly. It, it gets complicated quickly know, right. um, because they're, they're all individual people with right. individual feelings, but they were very public. They were publicly associated with Eisenhower and some of them um, worked directly for Eisenhower or supported him. Others couldn't quite make the leap because they preferred Adlai Stevenson, who was seen in some ways as quite conservative, uh, or they, they didn't like the way that Eisenhower was seen as unable to deal with um, Joseph McCarthy. Okay, so what, why, why were they called new conservatives? You, you mentioned that there was a pre-existing American right. So let, let's talk about that. We, it's, it is, we're, setting, we're setting the scene. And you, you mentioned this pre-existing American right, the Liberty League veterans, anti-New Dealers, Republican stalwarts committed to rugged individualism. So uh, again, what was the state of the conservative, well, it wasn't really a movement, but conservatism Pre the new conservative, who were the old conservatives? I guess the old conservatives, yeah, Yeah, yeah. the old conservatives, the old right. They were at this stage. Well, we're we're talking about um, the the right wing of the minority Republican Party at this stage because we're still talking about the New Deal uh, New Deal coalition, which hadn't kind of run out of steam yet. So they were um, the right wing of the smaller political party, the Republican Party, and then you also had. Um, slightly distinctly, um, no, very distinctly, you had the uh, conservatives within uh, the Democratic Party. So you had Southern conservatives, and neither they had not formed um, a single political coalition except on an ad hoc basis. So you had two kind of conservative groups, um, one of whom was very much a businessman's uh, conservatism, the small government against um, the New Deal in a kind of a strident way very much associated with laissez-faire economics, at least in the public view. And then on the Democratic side, you had, um, well, I guess, the association with states' rights. Uh, mostly the new conservatives were thinking about the Republican right when they were talking about conservatism. And this is the the, the press, when they talk, talked about conservatives, often meant the Republican right. And the, what the new conservatives were doing, the way that they were trying to pitch themselves, was as true conservatives in the sense that they believed in um, reform, uh, evolutionary development, conserving what they had, rather than what they saw the Republican right as, um, kind of radical Manchester liberals or, uh, yeah, like I said, businessmen's liberalism, not conservative, but but materialist and liberal in the classical sense. Uh, okay, so th- this was a serious, these were serious thinkers, these were serious writers. Um 
but as you point out, by the early 1960s, this whole project was dead. Uh, they broke with Barry Goldwater, Rossiter, uh, Clinton Rossiter, who had written this, this uh, you know, the the key seminal book about this uh, this this new new conservatism, had uh, rebuked his his association with conservatism. He, he actually wrote a piece in Time Magazine. I am not now and never have been a conservative. And Peter Varick uh, looked back on the 60s um, uh, on the political language that he helped popularize and wondered what went wrong. Conservatism at that point belonged to the right, not the center. So I'm trying to get some sense of this. So what was it about Buckleyism that was different? So these guys were sort of centrist moderates um, who were aligned with Eisenhower. Buckley came along and shoved them in the dustbin. How was he different <laughs> than them? Um, I don't know if he, he conscious. Well, he's, I think he did consciously do it, but <laughs> shoving them in the dustbin seems a bit harsh. Okay, I, this is this is the question that I wanted to get at with this this piece in particular, because as I say, you can find references to Varick, um and others around, but no one really. No one really answers what happened to them. Why did they just yeah. give up? And in some some respects, they did just give up because they saw the, the writing on the wall. And I try and answer it in a few ways. One is by saying um, the Buckleyite right, they had a pre-existing con- constituency that they were willing to appeal to. Um, I know you, you said earlier that the, the common narrative is that Buckley came along and said, let there be conservatism. Yeah. And he it, it's a, very hard to overstate how important he was as an entrepreneur and an and an and a networker for what became the conservative movement but there like i say there there did already exist this uh right wing this republican right wing that had a base of voters that had um funding groups that had some journals and buckley was able along with um other intellectuals and, and writers and, and ideological entrepreneurs who was able to plug into those networks, um, including his father, you know, an easy connection mm-hmm. right there. Um, and they were able to, I think, get traction quite quickly. And also they, Buckley and Kirk, Russell Kirk, another key figure in this, and um, and this national, the, the circle around what became National Review, they, as I say in the piece, had like a movement mentality. They were consciously thinking, we need to make a political movement. They had a background in political controversy and political activism. And so they were thinking in these terms, whereas the new conservatives were mostly academics, mostly ivory tower guys who were doing this kind of as a hobby. Um, and then, so that's one side of it. Uh, there was this pre-existing conservative or, or re- Republican right wing that they were able to tap into. The other side is that the new conservatives, it's unclear how much the public at the time thought they were offering something different to what liberalism represented at the time, because Cold War liberalism had its own sense of being um, pragmatic and being uh, non-ideological and being tough-minded about problems like communism. And so if you have a bunch of people talking about being conservative and it's not clear to a lot of people what's different from Cold War liberalism, I don't know. For, for some people, it's like, why do, you, why do you bother to call yourself a conservative? Okay, so this is interesting that you would say that because I, I, I have been struggling to understand exactly where they fit into all of this. So, for example, Virick would say that his vision was, as you write, non-Republican, non-commercialist, non-conformist. 
and that he wanted to synthesize the ethical New Deal social reforms with the more pessimistic anti-mass insights of America's Burkean founders. So, for example, this would be a group of conservatives who offered the po- that 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 basically, you know, the tried to make a political doctrine out of original sin that the, pe- the people mm-hmm. um, were not perfectible. Uh, that that in fact we needed to have that uh, that skepticism about uh, government schemes, which is you know profoundly conservative, but. It does seem very intellectual and not very distinctive. So when Buckley came along, he put an edge on it all. Mm -hmm. So what was it about Buckley and Goldwater that was the breaking point? What could they not go along with? They had an idea of kind of a moderate, culturally conservative movement. What was it about Buckley and the Goldwater campaign that blew them off? Well, they'd already been struggling with the Republicans about McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy okay. and and McCarthyism and Buckley um, in particular and, you know, others at National Review. National Review even published something under Buck, uh, Gold, uh, McCarthy's name, even though it was ghostwritten. Um, and so the new conservatives really struggled to get on with Buckley's um, sympathy at the very least for Joseph McCarthy. That was one breaking point. But it continued with the emphasis on on Goldwater, who, as you know, at the time had, um, I think he was seen as a decent person, but with kooky ideas, dangerous mm-hmm. ideas about uh, fighting communism to the extent that risked nuclear apocalypse. Um, but for Verrick, and I think also for Rossiter, it was Goldwater's um, economics that really did them in. I think he was seen as too bluntly laissez-faire, too... Um, eager to privatize social security or do it away entirely to privatize elements of the new deal. And it was with these, um, these economic steps that would kind of turn the clock back, um, that the, the new conservatives saw as ultimately radical and ultimately kind of the businessman's liberalism that they had rejected in their formulation of new conservatism. And you, and you pointed out the, how they, they kind of split up, that they were primarily academics. They didn't have the movement mentality. They didn't have a journal. Uh, they didn't have a magazine uh, that was their, you know, uh, that was their, you know, their their focal point. Um, unlike the, you know, Buckleyite right, um, most of these new conservatives were usually, you know, professors who basically went back to academic scholarship uh, and they also didn't have a political figurehead. That's why I was asking you about Eisenhower. I mean, Eisenhower obviously was not a movement conservative or an intellectual. So they, they didn't have uh, a, a Goldwater or a, a Reagan. So a lot of them ended up really kind of becoming Democrats. Well, some didn't of them they? did. Yeah, some no. of them did. Um, some of them, like I say, were already kind of leaning that way before John Hallowell, um, a, a political scientist professor at Duke. Um, he went to a National Review uh, dinner for conservative um, political scientists, and he had to admit before he accepted the invitation that he liked the welfare state, uh, he liked Keynesian economics, and he liked uh, JFK and the New Frontier. <laughs> And Buckley, who was personally very gracious, had come along anyway. Um, but uh, even even some of the the 
more Republican members of the new conservatives, the ones who had um, more of a direct political plan, because, you know, as you say, new conservatism was kind of hidden the clouds, conservatism in a lot of ways, but some of them did have specific political plans um, and worked for the Eisenhower administration, um, trying to come up with, I guess, a conservative spin on, on moderate Republicanism. But even these guys, people like McGeorge Bundy and August Heckscher, did wind up working for the Kennedy administration, and some sometimes very prominently. You, 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 you know, you talk about the um, their their legacy, the the, the right wing proponents of free enterprise, small government, and a blunter anti communism that paid less attention to the far right supplanted the new conservatives. The Buckleyites incorporated much of the new conservatism's traditionalism, terminology, their critiques of liberalism, but they wedded to that laissez-faire anti-government right. And you say America is perhaps poor for the loss of this conservative inheritance. Specifically, what are you referring to that the the loss of what? Um, what, 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 what got lost in this transition among conservatives into sort of a harder-edged uh, conservatism that we we saw in the sixties. I think I think a few things. Um, one is a willingness, or a strong willingness, to police the right. Um, the new conservatives, and they got they got criticized heavily by the Buckleyites for this, but they were very willing to look at right wing figures, both within the United States and also kind of um, dictate right wing anti communist dictators, and and be very critical of them. Um, and I think I think conserv- the conservative movement has struggled on this front, um, especially lately. Uh, another thing is um, a sense of of government that governs. Uh, Rossiter calls the American right um, the world's first anti-government right wing. You know, historically speaking, if we look around the world, right wings tend to be the party of strong government, central government, and, and authority. And there are elements of that, I think, in American conservatism. But you have a political movement and a political culture that is, in a lot of ways, small government, but that often morphs into anti-government. And I think it becomes very hard to govern effectively um, when you have an an anti-government position. It often becomes bad government. And then a third thing that I think gets lost in the mix is a sense of moderation Um, and proportionality. I think the conservative movement tends towards apocalypticism about the outcome of, you know, every election, every um, presidential election, or, you know, every kind of moment becomes, is this the end of America as we know it, or is it going to be revived in a heroic way? And I think the new conservatives had a sense of evolutionary development and moderation that gave them perhaps a little bit more proportion about politics and and maybe life. This is also the difference between American conservatism and, say, British conservatism. I think a lot of American conservatives have a hard time getting their heads around the fact that the British Conservative Party is very, very different than the Conservative Party in this country. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's one of the things that the new conservatives got criticized for, and and perhaps uh, appropriately. They were often Anglophiles. Some of them were just straight up English um, expats in the the U.S. And their sense of what the conservative party could be or ought to be was very different to the one that I think fits within American culture. Um, You know, American culture 
does have an emphasis on freedom um, as kind of its its basic idea and ideal. And that I don't think always comports with conservatism, especially as the new conservatives understood it. Uh, Russell Kirk, who I mentioned more as a Buckleyite kind of figure, but in a lot of ways, he's the one who su- he's the one who sucked up the air for the new conservatives and replaced them as the face of conservatism before Buckley. He was criticized as being 150 years or born 150 years late and in the wrong country, um, and I think that applies to some of the new conservatives as well. So, is there a distinction that that that's worth diving into between being conservative and being right wing? Because the way you're describing it, it sounds like the new conservatives were trying to claim conservatism for a conservative sensibility versus, say, a more right-wing worldview. That's the way that I ended up putting it. Um, and I think you could you could go in circles talking about what conservatives yeah. is and what – and I have done for almost a decade now, so let's not dive too deep yeah. into it. But, um, yeah, I think when you're talking about the right-wing, certainly in the American context – um, it so often means, at least to some extent, um, business interests, uh, small government, low tax. Whereas conservative, I think, at least on the face of it and the way that the new conservatives were using it, means a defense of you know what is good and valuable and, and what um, what society already has uh, that's worth worth conserving. And I think one of the the genius strokes of movement conservatism is they. Um, through folks like Buckley and folks like Kirk, they kind of married those two things. And they said, yes, things that are valuable and things that are good in society are the same as the right-wing principles that have um, long existed on the American right. And the new conservatives, I think, are an important reminder that not everyone always thought so. And that marriage between conservatism or the conservative sensibility and right-wing politics in the American setting is not always is not a natural one necessarily. It was one that was created at the time. Who are, if anyone, who are the heirs now of the new conservatives? What what leading figure is most influenced or sounds most like them, do you think? That is a tough question. I <clears throat> when I the, the piece that I wrote um came out of research that I did a, a long while ago. And I know that when you when you read the piece, it sort of reminded you of where the, the bulwark are now. And so I don't think it's an accident that it came out through the bulwark. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to flatter flatter you here. Um, I do think that some of the some of the noises that the Niskanen Center are yeah. making fit within this tradition. Um, and I think Jeffrey Cabaservice, who's a, a fantastic historian, um, his work on moderate Republicans, I think, fits very close to the tradition that the new conservatives were talking about and in perhaps a more practical way. But those guys mostly died out. And so looking towards who might be today's equivalent, I think I think that's tough. I you know, I don't know. Well, no, no, okay. <laughs> well okay, but now he's a he's a Democrat. Um I, yeah. I, I mean there there are there's some hints that that I've seen that that George Will was influenced by some of the leading intellectual figures of of the new conservative movement. Do you see any of that in his in his work? Yeah, I think especially in his earlier work, um, Statecraft is Soulcraft. I think he gets at um, this idea that um, the purpose of government is to govern, and that 
requires wisdom and thought, but it also requires actually trying to govern. And um, all credit to, to George Will. I think he's trended perhaps in a more libertarian direction um, since that book. Uh, but at, at the time, I think he did have um, an influence from the new conservatives. He also he also had a lot of colleagues who came from the Straussian world who have a similar, or at least the, the, the East Coast Straussians had a sense of the purpose of government is to govern. So I think George Will was influenced in that direction as well. Well, you know, again, what what I found fascinating about your piece was the way it, it it filled it filled in rather dramatic gaps for me in in my thinking about the conservative movement, because uh, as as you point out, these guys have been are largely forgotten. But the whole Eisenhower era has kind of been written out of the entire conservative history. People don't talk about Eisenhower or Eisenhower as a conservative. In fact, uh, the 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 dominant references uh, from the the Buckley right are a rejection of Eisenhower, a very conscious rejection of Eisenhower Republicanism, that Eisenhower Republicanism was too incrementalist, that it wasn't radical, it wasn't reformist enough. And as a result, in conservative literature, not only you not see references to Rossiter or Virick, but you know, virtually nothing about where does Dwight Eisenhower fit into the the history of conservatism. I mean, you can you can read about uh, you know Hayek, or you can read about H. O. Mencken, or you can even read about some of the things the anti New Dealers wrote. But but Eisenhower is kind of a blank spot. Well, I think. I think that's right. The the thing about Eisenhower in terms of the conservative movement is he did he did have an important role in conservatism, but it was a negative one. Um, the the Buckleyite conservatives in the the fifties, especially in National Review, consciously formed conservatism as a a response to a criticism of uh, Eisenhower. I think you often get the most. Um, dramatic developments in right-wing thinking when there's a perceived failure failure by the the center-right. I don't think those developments are necessarily um, good ones or even thoughtful ones, but they're the most dramatic leaps. And so when you had eight years of Eisenhower and, you know, the threat of four more through Nixon, um, you have the Buckleyite right being creative and taking leaps further to the right uh, in response to him. So the because they they fundamentally saw Eisenhower as indistinct from the New Deal, they called them Me Too Republicans. You know, here's the yep. Republican platform. It's more of the same of what a, the New Deal was offering. A, a Maybe it's going to be a little echo. cheaper. Right. It exactly. wasn't that the goal, a choice, not an echo. This was the major theme. Mm-hmm. Goldwater represented a choice against the New Deal, whereas the the modern republicanism of Eisenhower and, and and Nixon at the time, and I think in a lot of ways the New Conservatives was merely an echo of what FDR and Truman were offering. So when when Barry Goldwater um, who is one of the heroes in my telling of the conservative movement, um, but w- when he said extremism, the defense of liberty is no vice, these folks would have thought of that as a repudiation of actual conservatism. An embrace Absolutely. of that kind of extremism. Yeah, I mean that line has a funny history, um, but I th- I think so. People like Peter Verick, who in his very first essay, um, but I'm a conservative, on the new conservatism, he consciously rejects what he calls dynamism uh, because he thinks that leads to extreme politics and ultimately the path to totalitarian politics, either of the right or the left. And I think. What did, he, what, did he, what did he mean by dynamism? He meant um, 
a, a, you know, mass political movements um, that filtered up into kind of charismatic leaders or or cult of personality leaders who used the state as a in in ways to kind of enact um, mass power. I suppose I'm I'm not putting that the most coherently, but um, he had in mind things like fascism. You know, he's writing in 1941, so fascism, uh, communism, Nazism. And his um, father, of course, had famously been a one of the leading pro pro Hitler, pro Nazi writers in America. I mean, so he had he had some really serious family issues that he was working. He had through. some I mean, he, very serious yeah. family issues. I I didn't put it in the piece, but his brother actually died fighting um, against fascism uh, for the American army, and he dedicated one of his books on conservatism to him. And Varick said that he could never be morally indifferent toward anything connected with fascism. Um, it was it was deeply personal for him. But at the same time, he was deeply anti-communist as well. And he saw a lot of the um, the left liberals of the time as, as both smug, but also very soft or fellow traveling with communism. So he found himself, and this is true of all the new conservatives, they found themselves in, a, in an awkward middle where they were plague on both your houses, but they also didn't have particularly many friends. So he, when he heard Goldwater and the and the Republican right embracing extremism is no vice, he thought of that. That was an echo for things that he was very consciously rejecting in, yeah, in his I ideology and his life. He was he was troubled by that from a conservative point of view. Right. Exactly. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure exactly what his thoughts thoughts were, but I think yeah, it ran exactly against his conception of conservatism. As so, where did he end up? What ended up happening with him? Yeah, that's a good question. He he, I guess he just um, kind of receded into the background. He had um, sort of two parallel careers. He was a poet and he was a um, a historian, and he ended up focusing on his poetry and on his, on, on Russian history, uh, where he taught at um, Mount Holyoke. Um, but it's kind of in academia, it's sort of weird if you split your, um, your energies. And I don't think because he was a poet and a historian, neither of those, he sort of peaked in the forties and and early fifties and then kind of tapered off. Um, he had a lot of, he had personal crises, uh, in his, in his marriage and, and things like that. But he ended up being uh, a respected teacher, but at a, a fairly small college. Um, and it's hard to say. Um, but he was but one I of those guys was, that say, where, where did it go wrong? Where, where did, which, yeah. which again, this why it's kind of resonates why we're having this conversation today. These conservatives yeah. who are, you know, uh, you know, really thought that they were part of the conservative movement. Were trying to articulate a conservative vision, and at a certain point, looked around and asked themselves, "This is not what we had in mind. I did not sign up for this." Right. I, when I was when I was writing it, um, I thought about, you know, is it worth adding a section at the end that's, you know, explicit lessons for never Trumpers? <laughs> I ended up, I ended up not because I, you know, I like to be a bit more subtle about these things, but, um, I think there are lessons here and, and there, you know, to have a okay, movement well, mentality. Hey, yeah. we could, we could, we could use that now because okay, so you didn't put it in the article, but so what would the explicit lesson be? As I was reading this and listening to the discussions contemporaneously after, uh, you know, Clinton Rossiter's book came out, it, it did strike me as a very similar moment. This question mm-hmm. of what was conservatism? Is there a centrist conservatism? 
is it going to be, you know, defined by the right wing? So what what would you have said? Do you remember? And what would the explicit <sighs> advice that you would have given to never Trumpers? Yeah, well, I think um, one is have a movement mentality. Um, hmm. You know, look for other people like you and and build that consciously. Um, I think try and have some practical policies. Try and have practical um, implications for your your philosophies. And also look for political um, standard bearers, people that, you know, even if they're not perfect, at least can, you can say, this is the person carrying us forward. Maybe, you know, that's a, that's an exogenous factor to some extent. And um, I don't know, maybe don't just, just don't give up. Uh, The new conservatives, I think, were happy enough to go, ah, well, perhaps we are just liberals after all. Um, And as I say, I think something was lost in that, in that process. So in some ways, you, you'd mentioned this a couple of times that one of the breaking points was was McCarthyism. You know, you think about Trumpism and McCarthyism as as being somehow historically related, uh, that, that it was one of the most extreme, um, in many ways, indefensible reactions. But, but rather than, you know, being repudiated by the right, uh, the right embraced McCarthyism. Um, and that probably, in, in a lot of ways, as I read the histories, it's kind of, it kind of reads like a sort of a distant echo of the way the right embraced Trumpism. Do you, do you, do you see that analogy or is that too strained? No, I think I, I certainly see it. One of the ways that it comes through is where you have, um, you know, people who are considered the high, um, high expositors of conservative thought, people like Wilmore Kendall and James Byrne. I'm going a bit in the weeds here on conservative intellectual history, but you have these highbrow thinkers who- See, I know them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. See, they, they they saw themselves as um, on the McCarthy issue. They they often saw themselves as McCarthyites or um, anti anti McCarthyites. And I think um, you know James Burnham in particular. He left his kind of left wing associations because he saw himself as an anti anti McCarthyite. And I think that's one of the weird echoes of today, where you have the anti anti Trump um, press. And I think a lot of um, a lot of the the conservatives framed themselves in that way, and I think that was such such a strange echo to see that today. But yeah, I think um, the bullying, the the culture war element to it, but you know, before the term was a, a thing, I think that's that's echoed strongly. And, and of course, you actually have the personal ties. You know, Roy Cohn being the uh, the one of McCarthy's key aides, who then goes on to be having a long time association with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump famously wanted an attorney general was his Roy Cohn. So. It's like this, the, you know, the, the, the breadcrumbs are not, are not difficult to, to follow if you go in that particular direction uh, to, get, to get back to Joe McCarthy. And, of course, it's always been sort of painful for me to realize that one of you know, William F. Buckley's first books was his defense of, uh, defense of Joe McCarthy, um, who, of course, was a was Wisconsin United States senator. I have to keep remembering uh, that. So, you know, the... The history of all of this is so diff- difficult to, to to sort of parse out because there are so many different. I guess there are so many different directions that the 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 right could have taken. But reading this, I think, is you know, um, I guess it's it's sobering for me. Um, and, and your advice about not not giving up, not just disappearing from the field, I think, is very very important. Um, and but also how. You know, really, you know, sometimes these movements are very, very small. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we we think of them as these these you know mass uh, you know mass demographic demographic shifts, but but conservatism has always been a at least the idea has has always been you know held by a, a relatively small number of of, uh, of of thought leaders. I guess the question is whether or not the right wing now is really about ideas at all. And I guess that's kind of one of the questions that I have is whether or not we're in a post intellectual phase, whether any of this now has any relevance to what's happening to the right. Do you follow my question here? Yeah, I think it's hard to answer. Um, I have a I have a piece coming out next in the next issue of uh, the National Interest, and in that I, I try and I look at some of the foundational ideas of conservatism, especially through the, the guys I mentioned earlier, Burnham and Kendall, and I suggest that they laid out, even in a highbrow and, and in an often insightful way, laid out um, the logics and kind of the, the themes that today's right, uh, today's conservative movement still dwell on, um, you know, anti-liberalism, the threat of the left, kind of apocalypticism about elections, um, even kind of an anti-democratic sentiment um, that have become even dis- uh, disconnected from the the insights themselves and just become kind of the the the, the tropes and the themes of the right today um, so I think there's a there's a connection there but I would I think in a lot of ways the ideas have have left the right you know it wasn't that long ago when conservatives were calling themselves um, the party of ideas and yeah. I don't know if um, if many Republicans are going are, are waving that flag at the moment. Well, while I have you on, one of the other questions that I I, I was, should have asked this a little bit earlier, but but in the in terms of the new conservatives versus the more dominant conservative strain, does race play a role in this, or attitudes toward race? Do, was was that a dividing point between this group and yeah? I was actually I was just thinking we haven't talked about race yeah, here at yeah. all, um, and. To some extent, the answer is no. Um, race wasn't particularly important for this juncture, and that's partly because the new conservatives and Cold War liberalism at the time was not that attentive to race, to their shame. And a lot of them later admitted, uh, certainly the Cold War liberals admitted, we weren't thinking about race, and we should have been because you know it was staring us right in the face. But um, the the history of the conservative movement is inextricably bound up with with race and racism, unfortunately. Um, and I think if they if the new conservatives hadn't broken with um, Goldwater by 1964, I think his at least um, his his principled defense of states' rights that was um, picked up by a lot of genuine racists would have been a breaking point had they not already broken with him. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's that's worth remembering as you look back at the civil rights legislation of 1957 and 1964, and the vast majority of Republicans voted for that, but um, Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and he represented the direction the Republican Party was heading in rather than the Everett Dirksons of the world who had been you know, co-sponsors of the Voting Rights Act and had voted in favor of some of this stuff. And the Republican Party had had at one time um, gotten the lion's share of the uh, of the African-American vote. And that was that's one of the most dramatic changes in the 
Republican Party and the posture of the Republican Party, the Southern strategy, etc. Mm-hmm. And so my sense reading this between the lines was that this group of new conservatives um, might not have been comfortable going in that particular direction, although I didn't see anything explicitly about that. Yeah, I think that's right. So are you optimistic about the where the conservatives are right now? Do you, do you see the direction? Because I have to tell you, I, I'm having a hard time seeing a trajectory that is not taking them more into the more extreme kind of dynamic right wing um, movements that we're seeing um, in Europe rather than the kinds of more sober, moderate, traditionalist approaches that people like Peter Varick and Clinton Rossiter uh, thought uh, conservatives should be. Uh, yeah, I'm. I, to be honest with you, Charlie, I am not optimistic either. There might be one glimmer of hope, but it's a pretty backhanded one in the sense that um, the most right-wing elements of of what we still call the conservative movement may be beginning to abandon the term conservative. There was that ludicrous piece mm-hmm. in the American Mind recently, where they said we're not conservative anymore; we're counter-revolutionary, um, which is. I think the exact type of thing that Varick was was very concerned about, um, but yeah, it where does do, look where, like. Where, where, where do you put that on the political spectrum? Because that is a repudiation of conservatism. I mean, where 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 does that come from? That sort of that sort of we are the counter revolutionaries. I mean, that seems to be at least fascist adjacent, or is that too extreme? Talking about fascism gets you in all kinds of all kinds of uh, issues here. There's a big debate going on in kind of academic circles about whether or not to call Trumpism fascist. Um, but I think, yeah, I, a lot of that essay in particular struck me as as I don't like saying fascist, but yeah, fascist adjacent. I know you've read the Umberto Eco essay, yes. uh, fascism, and yes. I think um, it's it's ticking boxes there. And the language used in it was. Um, was very uh, extreme, I think, for the American idiom. Um, and so I think maybe you've got folks like Jesse Kelly and Tucker, Tucker Carlson and, and the Claremont Institute beginning to abandon conservatism. Perhaps there's an opening for a reclamation of conservatism as perhaps more uh, more to the right than I would necessarily like it, but with an ethos of moderation that I think is important. Well, let's leave it on that. Joshua Tate, thank you so much for joining me, particularly joining me from New Zealand. Thank you very is, much for having me. Which I which I think is, sets a record for the number of time zones we've we've crossed in this particular podcast. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>